Well, good evening, everyone. Let's see how this is going to work out. Oh, yeah. Oh, nailed it. Okay. Well, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to be with you guys tonight. Uh, we originally had planned to have uh, Danny Connor preach this sermon, but for those of you who know Danny, our campus pastor, his wife, Allie, they have had uh, their first biological child together, which we're so excited about. Um, so if you guys are watching, if you're crazy enough to be watching this while you've got uh, a toddler that you've just adopted and a newborn baby, uh, we love you, we miss you, and we can't wait to see you back. Um, but I am very excited to be here with you guys tonight uh, to open God's word. Um, we are back in the book of Ephesians, which is part of a very long journey that we as a church have been taking through the Bible. If you're uh, looking for some extra Bible teaching in your life and you want to go back and podcast, uh, we began this journey in the book of Genesis in 2006. And here, are, here we are in 2020, we've made it to Ephesians. So it should be plenty of fodder for you uh, during our time of social distancing uh, if you want to go look at that. But we're back into this journey now. We're back into the book of Ephesians, which feels a little bit more normal um, than it has felt uh, as of late. I mean, of course, we did uh, online gatherings for a while. We were in the book of Psalms. Um, and now that we're gathering back together, masked up as we may be, um, and social distancing as we are, and hand sanitizers on every table, and all of the things that we're walking through as a culture and a society and as a church right now, um, with everything else that's going in, on in our culture, with the realities of racial injustice, and the, and the fact that we can tell the world that we live in is upside down, right? That, that there is a living hope that we have in Christ, but there is uh, something still very wrong with this world. Um, and, and so here we are. So stepping back into the book of Ephesians feels a little bit refreshing. It feels a little bit normal. And so I am, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful uh, to be back uh, with you guys tonight here at uh, the Disney campus. As a way of refresher, uh, we are in Ephesians chapter four. So we, we walked through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. Then we took that break uh, during uh, pandemic quarantine time and uh, walked through some uh, faith and emotions through the book of Psalms. Um, and now we're back in the book of Ephesians. Last week, if you were with us, how many of you guys were here last week? Anybody show hands? So last week, our lead pastor, the lead pastor of Mosaic, Renaud, was here. Um, he, every year, uh, goes away on vacation, and God always does something unique in his heart, his life, through his family dynamic, which is wild. They have eight children, four biological and four adopted, and uh, God always does something wild in his vacation time, which those messages are all online and worth podcasting as well. Um, but last week, Renaud uh, walked us through Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3 as a part of his return from vacation sermon. And, uh, and tonight, we're going to walk into the next section, but it's very important for us to understand the context that we're in so that we can grasp what we're going to walk through tonight. So I'm going to give us a little bit of a big picture uh, context of the book of Ephesians before we step into our text tonight. I'm also going to uh, reread Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 and uh, re-preach Renaud's sermon from last week. So, uh, no, I'm just kidding. I, I, he did a great job, I'm sure. So, uh, chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians. Now, let's remember this book and why it's being written and who's writing it. Now, 
the Apostle Paul, uh, God has uh, chosen him to be the apostle, or the one he sent out with the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. What's unique about the Apostle Paul is that he wasn't always Paul. Uh, he grew up as Saul of Tarsus. He was uh, a very devout Jew. In fact, he uh, was a Pharisee and really, um, uh, you know, a Pharisee was someone who was very adherent to the Jewish law, uh, very, very articulate, very, very uh, uh, clear on what God's law is and how to put that out into practice. And the reality of the Pharisees is that they often butted heads uh, with Jesus, who was turning their paradigm of God's law on its head. And so uh, the Pharisees as a whole were not a big fan of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and, and as he began to more and more claim to be the Messiah, claim to be God in the flesh, uh, which as you read through the gospels, if you understand Jewish history, you will see those claims happening over and over and over again. Not that he would explicitly say, hello, my name is Jesus of Nazareth. I am the Messiah. Uh, I am also God in the flesh. He didn't say those words, uh, but he implicitly claimed that over and over and over again. And that's actually what got Jesus of Nazareth crucified on a Roman cross is that he continually claimed to be God. So Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee, and actually he was uh, uh, discipled or schooled in the, uh, in the lineage of Gamaliel, who was the leading Pharisee of the time. And so Saul of Tarsus, he was sharp. He had it kind of all together. Uh, he was an incredibly uh, devout, uh, God-fearing Jewish person. And for him, uh, Jesus of Nazareth was not Lord and Savior. He was not Messiah. He was actually an enemy of God because from uh, Saul's perspective, he thought that he was a blasphemer claiming to be God when he was not. And one day, as Saul of Tarsus was heading out from Jerusalem to Damascus, which was a nearby town, uh, he had letters in his hand, permission from the leader of the synagogue in Jerusalem to throw uh, Jewish men and women and even children into prison, uh, into jail for, uh, for following the way or Jesus of Nazareth. And he was persecuting Christians. In fact, the first martyr, the first Christian to die for their faith, Stephen, uh, part of the early church in Jerusalem, Saul of Tarsus oversaw his execution. So this is a guy who is an enemy of the faith of Jesus, an enemy of the way, an enemy of all of the followers of Jesus, and he is persecuting the church. So he's like uh, the, the uh, you know, archetype nemesis uh, of the church of Jerusalem. And wouldn't it be like God to stop Saul in his tracks and save him? <laughs> I don't know about where, where you've been in your life and what you have uh, done in your life, but I know that in my life, if I look at the life that I've lived throughout my lifetime, I recognize that when it comes to God's side and the other side, I've often chosen the other side. Uh, I've, I've often chosen my way. I've often chosen the world's way. I've often fallen in line with God's enemy, Satan, rather than being obedient to God. And so when I recognize that my sin has made me an enemy of God, wow, it sure is refreshing to know that God went out of his way to go and save Saul of Tarsus and bring him into the faith. And in terms of apologetics, in terms of the defense of the Christian faith, it's pretty astounding that Saul of Tarsus of all people who had nothing to gain from becoming a Christian would become a Christian. Uh, that he had everything to gain from remaining in power as a Jewish person persecuting the church. 
The fact that he became a follower of Jesus uh, who would be beaten, who would be imprisoned, all of those things that he experienced as a follower of Jesus gave up all of his prestige and power to follow Jesus. It kind of demonstrates that perhaps Jesus of Nazareth truly did in fact meet Saul of Tarsus on that road to Damascus and say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And instead, I'm gonna make you the apostle to the Gentiles. And so from a, the, the, the defense of the faith, from a, from a reason to believe in Christianity perspective, Saul of Tarsus or the apostle Paul, as we know him now through the writing of the scripture, is an incredibly important figure. So that is who is writing this letter. And actually, while he's writing this letter, he's literally in prison. He is in chains because Jewish people turned him over to the Roman government and uh, Saul, or Paul rather, uh, was getting ready to be beaten within an inch of his life and had to re- he had to appeal to uh, the Roman Caesar and f- appeal for a trial. And so he is sent to Rome and it is in the prison in Rome that Paul, and he, he's probably under some form of house arrest by this time, but Paul is writing a letter back to the church in Ephesus uh, that he was deeply connected with, that he loved. He knew their leadership very, very well. And so he's writing this letter back uh, to the Ephesian elders, not 100% sure that he's ever gonna make it out of house arrest. He's not sure how this interaction with uh, Caesar is gonna go. In fact, the Caesar that was in place during this time was Nero, Emperor Nero. He was a bad dude. And so uh, Paul could not have known what his fate would be. Um, And so he's in this prison cell or in house arrest, and he's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's saying, guys, there's some really important things that you have to know about what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection. And, and as you read through the book of Ephesians, you find two main themes that Paul keeps going back to over and over again. The first theme is reconciliation, um, and the second is renewal. And, and you, you see Paul unpack these two things very deeply in chapters one through three, where he's really unpacking What is the nature of the good news of Jesus or the gospel? What is the nature of the gospel? And he talks about this idea of reconciliation. First, there's two components, that we are reconciled to God. We who are enemies of God because of our own nature and choices, uh, we rebelled against God, our creator who created us very good, Genesis says, that we are enemies of God apart from Christ because we are disobedient to him. We are living a life that he did not design us to live. But the gospel in Christ reconciles us back to God. Jesus bore the weight and the wrath of our sin on the cross so that we could be forgiven and that we could be brought back into relationship with our creator. And so this reconciliation theme is vertical between us and God, but it's also horizontal. That, that God is doing a work of reconciliation among us, not just between us and him, but between us and one another. Because as you know, and as our world uh, aptly demonstrates on a regular basis, uh, human beings are really good at creating strife and division uh, against one another. Am I right? Uh, That is the world that we live in. And so what, what this theme of reconciliation does is it shows us that God is not just interested in our relationship with him, but he's also interested in our relationship with one another. Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's vertical. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's horizontal. 
And the second mega theme that we see in the book of Ephesians, particularly in chapters one through three, is renewal. And renewal is this beautiful thing that, that God is doing. In fact, Jesus gives us a picture at the very end of the story that he will eventually make all things new. But in salvation, uh, uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if, any was in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, that the old is gone and the new has come. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I have some regrets. <laughs> I have some regrets in life. I've done some things, said some things, participated in some things that, oh my gosh, I wish I would not have, especially now that I know Jesus. But what the gospel tells me is that Jesus has made me new in him, that there is a personal work of renewal that the gospel does in me, that, that not only am I reconciled with him relationally, but also he's made me a new person, which is really good news. But in addition to that, Jesus is inviting us to take part in renewing of the cosmos, renewing of the creation, of partnering with God to bring creation to a point of its original intent and even beyond that point. And so we have this hope in not only uh, our reconciliation with God and not only our personal renewal, but that through reconciliation with others, we bring about a corporate renewal that we bring the, the, the kingdom of God, as Jesus would say, to bear on planet earth. And as you and I follow Jesus and love others and bring the, the light of the gospel and be, be the salt of the earth everywhere we go, we bring both reconciliation and renewal to the world around us. That's a beautiful thing. So that is the mega theme of the book of Ephesians. And, and chapters one through three is really just Paul declaring the reality of the gospel. And chapters four through six is what is our response? How do we respond to the gospel? How do we actually implement what it says is true in chapters one through three? Well, Paul did this in many of his letters. He started with the, uh, the indicatives or what has happened in the gospel. And then he moves to the imperatives, which is what do you do with it? I don't know if you remember English uh, you know, grammar when you were a kid, um, but there is a type of sentence called an imperative sentence. It usually ends in a period or an exclamation point. An imperative is what you are to do because someone has instructed you. And I think it's a beautiful grace of God that through the New Testament, he starts out with the why, why we should do what God is asking us to do. And that is because God is so very good to us that he loves us so much. He loved us so much that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we find ourselves responding now in chapters four through six with the imperatives of the gospel. What am I gonna do with this? As, as we've now heard chapters one through three. If you're joining us uh, fresh or if you're new with us or it's been a while since you've been with us, I would highly recommend Go back and listen to those sermons from Ephesians 1 through 3 uh, and go read it tonight. You could read Ephesians in like 12 minutes, uh, maybe, maybe 25, right? It's a very small book, but it's so incredibly beautiful. So here we sit in chapter 4, and what Paul is doing is he's, he's saying, listen, you know what the gospel is now. Let me tell you what to do with it. And verses 1 through 3, if you were here last week, Renault shared Verses one through three, Paul kind of comes out swinging, okay? He's taken three chapters to unpack the gospel. And then verses one through three of chapter four, he's like, okay, now I'm gonna challenge you to do something. And guess what? It ain't gonna be easy, okay? It's gonna be really hard. In fact, it's gonna be impossible. It's gonna be impossible to do what I'm calling you to do, which puts us in a predicament, doesn't it? So I want us to go there. I want us to read it. 
recognize how very impossible it is. And then I promise there's some good news around the corner. All right, so let's grab our Bibles. Ephesians chapter four, uh, we're gonna start in verse one. Uh, just as a recap, I'm gonna go through one through three, and then we'll get into our actual text tonight, verses four through six. Ephesians chapter four, you'll find on page 1080 of the Mosaic Bibles. Um, and if you're looking it up on a smart device, you can look it up in the English standard version. It'll make it easy for you to follow along. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through three. Paul says, I therefore, that word therefore is a big word. He's basically saying, based on chapters one through three, I'm gonna tell you something. And then he appeals to them as a prisoner for the Lord. So I therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord. Where is Paul right now? Prison, house arrest. He is, he is incarcerated for Jesus right now, um, literally, which is awesome. Uh, that he is willing now as one who was putting people into prison for their faith. Now he's willing to undergo prison because he saw Jesus resurrected from the dead on the road to Damascus. Again, this is a big deal. But Paul says, as a prisoner, prisoner of the Lord, I urge you. Now this word urge could not be stronger. In Greek, as you look it up, you just see that there's this like, begging, imploring. I mean, you've got this picture of a guy like wrapping his uh, arms around someone's legs, just begging and pleading with all that is within Paul. He's saying, I am gonna urge you based on the gospel to do something, okay? And the reason why he uses that strong language is because what he's about to urge us to do is really hard. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So the gospel this gospel of reconciliation, not just with God, but with others, and this renewal that's not just personal, but takes on the form of the renewal of all creation, this is a big calling. And so Paul is saying, I'm gonna urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've been called with all humility, all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I mean, listen to that. All humility, gentleness, Patience, Renault last week probably shared that uh, patience, if you unpack it, it's long suffering. <laughs> That's like, it's one thing to be like patient. Like uh, today I was at um, our next door neighbor's house. We have a real close relationship with them. Uh, it's like family and they invited us over for souffles. And uh, souffles are interesting things. I've never made one, um, but apparently it looks done a lot longer than, than you would think. Like, if you bring a souffle out of the oven, as soon as it looks done, you're gonna eat an eggy, runny mess. So you have to have patience to see that egg souffle get done. This is not what this word is, okay? Uh, we're, Paul's not you know, imploring them, oh, just work on your patience, Ephesians. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Like, that's, I think it's so funny. Okay, this is a fun aside. If you ever want to confess like a sin, but not really, you know what I mean? Like if you're like in, in Christian community, like, hey, what are you struggling with? You know, God's really just teaching me about patience. You know what I mean? It's like the best cop-out thing to say. So you just put that in your back pocket and start talking about patience. No, no, no. What God is actually talking about is the willingness to suffer for a long time. That's really different than waiting for an egg souffle really different than just not being, you know, quick to correct or quick to judge. This is being willing to suffer with others for a long time. Wow. So Paul is saying, I want you to have all humility. I want you to be gentle 
And I want you to suffer for a long time with one another, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Wow, it's a big call. And, and I don't know if, if you feel this way, but when I read this and I look at my own life and I look at my own tendencies and I think about this guy that I walk around with every day named Joel, and I just think, I'm just not capable of doing this and I'm right. And we should hear a list like this and feel like, I'm probably gonna fall short of that because a list like this is not meant to be done on your own strength. It's not meant to be done because you're just becoming a really good person. This is meant to be done and only can be done through understanding what we're about to walk into in our text this evening. Um, during this pandemic, my wife and I have been, uh, we, we've just gone crazy and we decided to become farmers. And I don't know if I give off a lot of farmer vibes. Like, I don't know if you met me in like, uh, you know, Magic Kingdom one day, you'd think that guy's definitely a farmer here on vacation from his crop. You know, like that, that's not maybe the vibe that I give off. And uh, we decided we're, we're, you know, we do gardening, okay? Uh, it's not farming. We do gardening and we decided we we're gonna get some backyard chickens, which is for crazy people. And that's who we are. So we are going to be raising chickens at the Coffin House. And uh, part of that is because we have a, a one and a half year old baby and we want her to kind of be able to experience the life of like, caring for things, seeing how food works and all of that. Uh, but, but part of it is just because we're crazy. And because we're crazy, uh, we have decided on uh, building a chicken coop that is not just any chicken coop. This is a chicken coop we found on hgtv.com. So it's cute, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like farming doesn't have to be cute, but this is like a, an HGTV chicken coop pandemic experience that I've walked into. And not only do I not really give off a lot of farmer vibes, but I'm not exactly like the handiest dude that ever walked on planet earth, okay? Like I, I'm not like giving a lot, a lot of construction worker vibes either. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm just kind of, I like to like nerd out on like church history. Like that's, that's more my vibe, you know? So we're getting ready to build this chicken coop and I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm doing, but thankfully, this plan that we found on HGTV.com comes with really good step-by-step -step directions and a blueprint. It comes with a step-by-step -step directional blueprint of how to make this chicken coop. And so, so far, uh, we've made it through buying all the materials and putting a frame together and uh, putting a roof on it and putting uh, walls around it and putting hardware cloth, not to be con confused with chicken wire, which you would think would be good to have chickens in, but it's not. How confusing, right? I don't know anything about farming. Here you go get chicken wire. No, 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 you need hardware cloth. What? <laughs> Apparently chicken wire is only good for keeping the chickens in, but it's not good at keeping the predators out. So I'm putting hardware cloth around this. I'm burying the hardware cloth. It's summer. I'm sweating like a madman, right? And over and over and over again throughout this process, I realize I don't remember what the next step is. I read through the whole thing, but I don't remember it. So I have to go back to the plans over and over and over again. What does this need to be measured? How do I fit this with that? What is this supposed to look like when it's all done? So I'm going back to the blueprint, going back to the plan over and over and over and over again, because without it, I have no hope of building a successful and cute chicken coop, okay? 
And what Paul is doing here is he's given us the blueprint. In verses four through six, he's saying, listen, you can't build this chicken coop by yourself. It will look stupid. It will not be something that will keep predators out. It will fall over the next time there's a windstorm. And in Florida, we get those a lot, right? Paul is saying, you have no chance at doing verses one through three unless you understand verses four through six. And unless you come back to this reality over and over and over and over and over again. If you look up my frequently visited uh, sites on my Safari, on my phone, it's like email and chicken coop. Like that's it. Those are my, like, that's what I'm looking at on the internet, you know? And I've, I've literally had to go probably 500 times plus to this website and look back at these plans and, and look at the pictures and figure this out. And that is what we're supposed to do with the gospel. That is what we're supposed to do with God's word. We are easy and good at forgetting. It, we, it comes naturally to us. And so Paul is saying, I'm gonna give you something to come back to. It's a blueprint to be able to accomplish verses one through three. So there's my intro. Emily's sweating in the back. I got 13 minutes plus five in the red. Here we go. Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse four. So now he's thrown down the gauntlet. He's called us into this really hard thing. And now what's he gonna do? He's gonna tell us, here is the blueprint. This is how you accomplish this. I'm gonna read it and then we're gonna walk through it together, okay? Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, at first glance, what it feels like and seems like is Paul's just listing about listing a few facts, um, listing a few things that are true. Um, and as you dig into this, you realize that what he's doing is extremely profound and very helpful, very important for us to understand. So anytime you're doing Bible study, if you're studying the Bible and you're, you're wanting to understand the Bible more, when you come to a place and the author of that, that scripture that you're reading is using something, a literary device called, a device called repetition. It's a really important thing to pay attention to. And Paul is using that right now. So he's just thrown down this really hard calling. And now he's saying, there's a lot of things. And, and, and let's remember what this calling is about, right? This calling is about having unity within the body of Christ. If you were to summarize verses one through three, you would just say, it's about the body of Christ, the body of believers being unified, loving one another, caring for one another well, being of the same heart and the same mind, bearing with one another, uh, having humility, gentleness, and patience, maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is verses one through three. It's all about unity in the body of Christ. So now in verses four through six, Paul's saying there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is through all in all. So he's saying one, 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 one over and over and over again. And so what I wanna do is I wanna take a look at this list of ones. Now, consequently, there are seven ones. And in uh, Judaism, the number seven is a very important number. It's, it's a, a very significant number. There are seven days in a week. Uh, this is an idea of completeness, that there is a wholeness that is here, uh, that this is the, perf the perfect number. It's a number of perfection. So seven is a big deal anyway, 
but he uses this list of seven ones to demonstrate how unity can be achieved, to demonstrate the basis of unity, to understand where unity even comes from and, and how we're going to make one through three flesh out in our lives is dependent on if we understand where the basis of that unity comes from. It is the why behind the what. Paul says, you, you should be unified. And then verses four, he's saying, here's why. Now I've already told you in chapters one through three, why it's called the gospel. But I'm gonna, in this real short snippet, give you a list of seven ones. And these ones are gonna help you become one. We are one together, unified. So these ones are gonna fall into two categories. The first category is our communal reality of faith. It is the church experience, the Christian community, okay? So that's one category. The second, because that's the context that we're talking about, being unified within Christian community. And the second category is he's gonna talk about God himself, who is our ultimate blueprint, our ultimate example and picture and image of unity is God himself. So God, because he created humanity in his image, wants us to be like him. So these things that he's gonna talk about being one are falling in those two categories, either in the category of Christian community and life or in the category of God himself. And this is our blueprint for unity. When we understand who God is and we understand the nature of our community and the nature of the gospel and the nature of how that fleshes out in faith, this is the blueprint that we go back to. This is our hgtv.com on the safari, right? that we come back to this over and over and over again. And that is how we become the kind of people who can accomplish verses one through three. So I'm gonna walk through these fairly quickly. Um, and there's a lot that you could really dig into on each one of these, um, but I'm gonna go through these fairly quickly. So he says that there is one body. So he starts in the area of Christian life, faith and community, because that's the context of what he's doing. He's talking about unity in the church. So there is one body. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul's gonna write about a body, the church, that is made up of many parts. Now, the church is meant to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. We are meant to be the body of Christ. When Jesus said, I'm gonna go, but I'm not gonna leave you alone. I'm gonna send a helper to you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What he's saying is that when people see you, they'll know who I am. You're gonna be my witnesses you're gonna bear witness of who I am to the world around you. Mosaic, when you walk into your workplace every single day, week, or whenever you get back from furlough, you are the hands and the feet of Jesus at Walt Disney World. This is a big part of why we do Mosaic at Walt Disney World is because we believe that God is calling us as a church to make a positive impact in that place. And it's a difficult place to make an impact. And you guys know that very well for those of you who are cast members. And some of you work in other places. For those of you, God is calling you to be the hands and feet of Jesus in those places. God is calling you to be that in your relationships, everywhere you go. But specifically when we come together as the church, we ought, people ought to look in on us and go, yep, that's what Jesus looks like. When they see our relationships, when they see our community, when they see the way we talk about one another, the way we talk to one another, the way that we interact with one another, they should say, oh, so that's what Jesus is like. So there is one body and it is the body of Christ and we are that body. It's a big responsibility, but it's incredible. It's incredible that, that 
God has given us the opportunity to show people who Jesus is. And guess what? We all don't look exactly alike. So we are one body, but we're made up, Paul says elsewhere, of many parts. So there's a diversity among us. We all have different skill sets and giftings. We have all different passions and backgrounds. We come from different um, you know, uh, uh, social realities. We come from different um, uh, ethnic realities. We come from different uh, financial realities. We come from all of these different places. We have different levels of education or types of education. We have different hopes and dreams. We have different goals, different personalities. All of those things make diversity within this body, but we are one body. I told you I was gonna go through this fast. That was slow. <laughs> Second one, one spirit. So there is one body and one spirit. This is directly talking about the Holy Spirit. This is the one that Jesus said, it's good for you that I go because I'm gonna send you the Holy Spirit and he will help you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He's gonna lead you. He's gonna guide you. He's gonna make you more like me. And then when you come together, you're gonna to be unified by him. This is what Paul is saying when he says in verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, that we have the, whole, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. If you are a believer in him, lives inside of you. But guess what? He also lives inside of me. And every Christian there's no such thing as like a super Christian that has more of the Holy Spirit. And then there's like just the common Christians who only get like a portion. No, all of us as followers of Jesus receive all of God, all of the Holy Spirit, who is fully God. He's not one third God, he's fully God. And we're gonna talk about the Trinity a little bit because the whole Trinity is written in this. That's the fastest I can go on the Holy Spirit. Okay. So there's one body, one spirit, and one hope that belongs to your call. Okay, so Paul is now connecting our calling to this list of ones. He's saying, live a life worthy of the calling. Well, how are you gonna do that? Well, there's a whole lot of things that are really important, this list of ones that I'm gonna share with you, and they are connected with your calling. And Paul says, one hope that belongs to your call, that you and I are hoping that Jesus who said he was Messiah is Messiah. That Jesus who said he is God is God. We are hoping that Jesus who said he is returning will return one day. And this is not just like random hope without any kind of study or reason or, or uh, actual fact to base this hope on. This is not like when you wish upon a star sort of hope. This is a hope that's grounded in reality. So Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected from the dead. And then he had witnesses, eyewitnesses, many of whom went to their death, proclaiming that they had saw a resurrected Jesus. And for the last 2000 years, he's given us his word and those witnesses to help us see that our hope is not futile or not in vain, but it's full of reason and full of reality. That There is a, a real hope that we put our hope in. It's not just like a... a uh, a, a vain hope, but a real hope. There is actual confidence that we can attach to the hope that we have. And it is this hope that belongs to our calling. We have no way of being, uh, you know, all of the things that Paul unpacks in verses one through three, bearing with one another, gentle, all humility, patience, maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's not happening if we don't have hope 
beyond ourselves. If our only hope is in each other, we will let each other down. I love this community. I love the community of God. I love Mosaic. I love Mosaic at WDW. I love that we spend time with one another uh, in socially distant ways right now, right? Like, I love that we do all of that. But guess what? The community, no matter how beautiful and great it is and can be, it will fail you. But we have this hope that is uh, connected to our calling because the hope is beyond just one another. It is in Christ and what he is doing on this earth and that his promise to make all things new will come true. And that we are invited to play a part of that, it's incredible. Speaking of Jesus, we have one Lord. This is the second person of the Trinity that Paul is now referencing. So we have one spirit, one Lord. He's referencing Jesus Christ specifically. So we have the spirit and we have the son. And this son, he uses the term Lord very purposefully here because in order to maintain unity, we have to know who's in charge. Who the boss? <laughs> Jesus. He's not just, you know, your co-pilot. In fact, he's not your co-pilot. It's the most ridiculous bumper sticker ever, okay? As if like, you're like flying the 747 and you're like, hey, Jesus, how's my barometer? It's fine. No, like, like the plane doesn't fly without Jesus. You know what I'm saying? He is in Colossians. Paul says that he is the one who holds everything together by his power, that everything was created by Jesus and for Jesus. He is not just savior, but he is Lord, which means he does not wait for your opinion to give commands. He doesn't ask you if you think unity is a good idea. He's Lord. I could go a lot longer on that one, but I'll leave it at that. Oh man. All right. So we have, a, that's a clock. All right. So we have one Lord and we have one faith. This is a shared faith that we have now. So he's gone from God now back to our Christian life. We have one faith in Jesus for salvation, for uh, his return. We have one shared common belief. This is Orthodox Christianity that we have shared belief that we agree with the Apostles' Creed, that, that we are all standing in shared joined faith that we believe that God of the Bible is God, that Jesus of Nazareth came, lived, died, resurrected, and is returning. We are all in agreement as Christians on those things. We all believe that our God is one God who eternally exists in three persons. And we're gonna get to our final third person of the Trinity here in just a moment, which technically is the first, Paul transposed it. But we have one faith and it's shared, it's shared. And then there is one beautiful way to express that we are a part of this faith and that's baptism. She says, we have one baptism that we come and, and, and say to the community, we're in. We're a part of the community. And yes, baptism can look different ways depending on your church expression. Uh, at Mosaic, we do baptism for believers by immersion. Other church traditions do it different ways. But the point is, is that baptism joins us within God's community. That's what baptism is about in every church tradition. And so there is one baptism. And then finally, Paul says that there is one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So there is this God who is not just God, but he is our father. So first of all, this is the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all represented in this list of seven ones. So what is our basis for unity? God. 
because he is one God who eternally exists in three persons. That means there is diversity within God himself, but there's eternal and perfect unity within God himself. That we have one God who eternally exists in three persons. God the Father is God, but God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is God, but God the Son is not God the Spirit. God the, the, the Spirit is God, but God the Spirit is not God the Father. So the Spirit is God, the Son is God, the Father is God, but God is not the Father, uh, the, the Father is not the Son, and the Father is not the Spirit. You guys following me? This is easy. <laughs> easy stuff, easy stuff. So, and within the Trinity, they, they play out different roles. Did God the Father die on the cross for our sins? Big fat no, right? God the Son did. Did God die for our sins? Big fat yes, Jesus is God. This is Trinitarian theology. We live in one God, we're monotheists. But this God is three persons. Wow, it's, it's amazing. To break it down, for those of us who are fans of children's things, right? Uh, Dr. Seuss, right? He explains the Trinity very easily, that, that God is uh, one God, he's one what, and he's three persons, three who's. Now, Dr. Seuss didn't actually explain that, right? <laughs> I don't think he did a lot of theology, but if, if he were to explain the Trinity, God is one what, three who's, right? In essence, he's one. In unity, he's one. In relationship, he's, he is one God, but three distinct persons. Okay, why is that important? Why did Paul use that? Because if we don't understand the nature of who our God is, we can't be unified with one another. When we recognize that God himself is perfectly unified, yet there's a diversity within his being of personality trait, now I can recognize, oh, I don't have to expect so-and-so to be the same Enneagram number and wing as I am. You know what I'm saying? When I, when I recognize that there's one God in three persons, I also see that Jesus died on the cross, not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells believers, not God the Father. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. The Father doesn't sit at the right hand of the Father. The Father sends Jesus. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus and draws us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit makes us like Jesus. You see that each individual of the Trinitarian God that we serve, individual person of the one God that we serve, is working intensely and intentionally and uniquely within the realities of the world and salvation. And so it's okay for us to do different things as well. It's okay for you to be really passionately involved in, uh, in eradicating human trafficking. And for me to be really, really passionate for biblical financial stewardship. It's okay for, uh, for me to be uh, you know, a drummer and for you to be tone deaf. That's okay. It's okay for, for all of us to bring different things to the table. And actually it's beautiful. It looks like God, that we come together, one people with many diverse skills, many diverse talents, many diverse roles. So the blueprint that we are looking at is God himself. The blueprint that we are looking at is our shared faith together. 
that we look at God and we say, what, okay, man, I just had this really hard discussion with this other follower of Jesus and we're not really seeing eye to eye. And how do I reconcile all of that? And then I remember that, wait a second, our God is perfect. (laughs) I am not perfect, but our God is one God and there are three distinct persons within the Trinity. And it's okay if me and my friend don't see eye to eye on every single thing, although God does see eye to eye on everything. He's perfectly unified because he's perfect. Yet to recognize that God himself, that there is diversity within the Godhead should give us the permission to have some diversity. In fact, it should give us a command to have some diversity. We shouldn't look the same way. We shouldn't talk the same way. We shouldn't come from the same department at WDW. We, we shouldn't all uh, come to the table with the exact same realities. We should bring a diversity to the table. But in that diversity, because we have a shared common faith with one another, yes, we can differ on things like Uh, how this pandemic should be handled. We can differ on things like, how do we see racial justice take place in the world today? We can differ on things like, who do you vote for? We can differ on things like, man, my background, this is the way we dealt with relationships or walk through relationships. Man, your background is different. We have different cultural realities. All of those things can still remain and actually be a strength instead of a deterrent. In the world, diversity usually makes things more and more and more difficult. But in the church, it ought to make things more and more beautiful. We just have to remember the blueprint. Every single day, our call is to go back to God and go back to the gospel. Because when we do, we will see that we have one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. This whole world, he oversees, he is sovereign over, and he is doing a work that is filling all of his creation. And one day he'll make it all new. And we, as his Children are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so it is our privilege to bring the beauty of our God who is unified and diverse. It is our privilege to bring the beauty of his gospel and his story through Christian community and through Christian faith to bear so that when people look in on us, they say, oh, so that is what God is like. Will we get it right every time? No, it will not be perfect. If you look at my chicken coop, it ain't perfect, okay? There's some things this guy didn't do right. But you know what? At the end of the day, hopefully there's gonna be some chickens and there's gonna be some eggs. And at the end of the day with us, if we continue to go back to the blueprint over and over and over again, people are gonna see God for who he is and see Christian life for what it is and want to be a part of this family. And that is the beauty of our call as followers of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love for us. God, I know that When we dig into things like um, Trinitarian theology and uh, this list of seven things that are one, um, it can get a little bit heady, but God, I I just thank you that you have placed it in your word so that we can remember and not forget who you are and who you are inviting us to be. God, I pray with everything that is in my heart, that we would reflect who you are to the world. God, I pray with everything that is in my heart that we would remember the good news of what you've done and that we will step into the invitation that you've given us to to follow after you, to live for you, to be the people that you've called us to be. And God, I know we're not gonna get it right, 
I know we're gonna struggle. We'll, we'll struggle to live with uh, humility and gentleness and, and long suffering, to bear with one another, to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It'll be a daily struggle. And, and God, I confess that I do not always use words that, that bring that about. I don't always think thoughts that bring that about. I often struggle to live this out. I, I confess that to you before my brothers and sisters. But I thank you that you have given me something to see, something to look at, a blueprint, who you are, what your story is. And that God, we have the opportunity to come back to that day after day after day after day so that your kingdom would come to bear on this earth. God, we pray that that would be true of our lives as individuals. God, we pray that that would be true of us as a community of followers of Jesus. And God, we pray that if, if you use us to do these things, God, that others will come to know you as their Lord and their savior. And we will have other brothers and sisters in Christ that you've used us to bring into the faith. God, let that be true. Let that be so. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.